Pray with me. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable to you, our great God and Redeemer. Amen. You know, it's hard to believe we're sitting here on the Sunday right before Thanksgiving. Has this been a time warp year or what? My goodness. You know, Thanksgiving is one of my favorite times of the year. Christmas gets to be pretty busy around my house with a large family. I don't know about you guys, but it gets to be pretty busy. But there's something about Thanksgiving that allows us to slow down enough and just center on the, the sole purpose of that day. And that really is to gather and to give thanks, to talk about the things that God's done. And through thick and thin, through tough years, through, through uh, years that have gone well, to gather around a table and to be able to tell the stories of God's faithfulness. You know, this year is no different because uh, despite the fact that there have been so many changes this year, so many things that have happened in the last 10 months, we still have a lot to be thankful for. And so I want to talk today a little bit about this intersection of hope and, and trust and faith. And it's something that, you know, when they say when you teach, uh, you, when you teach once, you learn twice. And I, I told uh, Jacob earlier, I think that that is probably multiplied by four when you preach, right? Because um, as, as I've worked through this sermon myself, it's, I found there are things that I needed to be encouraged about. And so I hope that you'll find something in here that's encouraging for you as well. Because if we look at it on the, on the surface, this has been a discouraging year, if we think about it in so many ways. And we're not exempt from the angst that is caused by the polarization that we see in our politics, in our country, and our, perhaps even in our families, and within the broader body of Christ. I think that we could all agree with the opening words of A Tale of Two Cities cap that they capture a lot of the roller coaster that we've experienced this year. Dickens wrote, uh, writes that it was the, the best of times, it was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom, it was the age of foolishness. It was the epic of belief, it was the epic of incredulity. It was a season of light, it was a season of darkness, it was the spring of hope, and it was the winter of despair. You know, the tension that Dickens creates between these opposites is palpable. Best, worst, wisdom, foolishness, belief, incredulity, light, darkness, hope, and despair. His prose reminds us that there are times when we're confronted with life at, at the extremes, when we're pulled from our complacent middle grounds into realities that are probably not of our own making and certainly not of our own liking. Yet these moments can have the effect of bringing things into sharp relief. Where foolishness parading as wisdom is exposed, where darkness parading as light is revealed, and where our faulty beliefs are weighed in the balance and found wanting. Times when we're challenged to take a serious look at ourselves and in what we're placing our hopes, our trust, and our faith. In what or in whom are we anchoring our lives? What assumptions or presumptions are we making about the future? What happens when those assumptions begin to unravel? Over the past few months, we've seen a time of upheaval unlike anything that I've experienced in my lifetime. I mean, for sure, there have been in the past major economic downturns and wars and civil unrest and, and even major cultural shifts in the past. But underneath it all, the basic foundations of our institutions, including our churches, provided a stability that was needed to work through the problems. We could trust that we could get through it because somehow we always had. After a time of debate and obligatory finger pointing, we'd find our way to workable solutions, usually somewhere in the middle. 
But this season has presented us with challenges, however, as debate has often been replaced with theater, focusing on producing sound bites that are frequently passed along in or out of context by millions of newscasters and commentators read you and me on social media, and we eagerly await the next juicy morsel. The effect of all of this is to create a range of polar extremes, not unlike the extremes set forth by Dickens. On one side, there's a passionate desire to continue momentum toward change. New roads are being laid down, and we're told, to quote a former employer of mine, we're going through a merger. He said, you know, this thing is a steamroller, and you can either hop up here on the steamroller with me, or you can be a part of the pavement, right? So I guess that was true from his perspective. On the other side, there's a sort of introspective anxiety that comes from trying to look at the picture from the larger perspective and seeing the ripple effects that could not only not produce the hoped for changes, but, but result in even a greater stability and, and perhaps a sort of forced compliance to a cultural orthodoxy that cancels all diverse views. These are days when we may feel like the disciples caught in a storm in the Sea of Galilee. For over the past 10 months, we've ex- they've, they've been exposed in us, in our churches, and in our nation, uh, deep fears our invincibility based on a hope that, and trust that science and medicine could keep us from all harm has been challenged. Our assumptions about progress toward racial healing that's been made over the past 50 years with regard to divisions have been challenged. Our assumptions that we would always be free to worship when and wherever we pleased have been challenged. Our assumptions that we would be able to gather as family, as big and as bold as we want, have been challenged. For many, it's been a time of return, however, of looking deeply to discover, again, the promises of God's word, regardless of the news headlines. In light of this, it's been a time for me personally to try and pull up and above the noise and discover, again, the anchor points for my hope and my trust and my faith. As in any critical analysis, we have to determine what we know already. Isaiah 40, 21 through 31 provides a corrective that I've needed many times over the past few months by reminding me that God is sovereign and he can be trusted. Isaiah writes, do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught. He reduces the rulers of the world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown. No sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and the whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, O Israel, well, my way is hidden from the Lord and my cause is disregarded by God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator to the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. 
They will soar on wings like eagles. They'll run and not grow weary. They'll walk and not faint. So whether you come to church this afternoon soaring on wings like eagles or running with relentless strength or walking with endurance are just grateful to put one foot in front of the other and be here. This is a place where we can all find rest, grace, mercy, forgiveness, instruction, inspiration, and perhaps correction from God's word and a place where hope can begin again for each of us. It's a, a place, in fact, where hope, trust, and faith intersect, rightly ordered and rightly applied. So in our time this afternoon, I'd look, like to look at these three foundational elements that are present or should be present in the, the life of every believer, specifically to take a look at the object of our hope, our trust, and our faith. What are we, what is the, what are we trusting in? What are we hoping in? And to understand again the call to action in light of that confession. So let's start with hope. As in anything, we have to make sure that we have clear definitions. Hope, if you look at up in the dictionary, is defined as a sense of expectation, a certain desire for certain things, a feeling of trust or optimism. Romans 8.24 says, For in this hope we are saved. But hope is seen, is not hope at all, for who hopes for what he already has? Psalm 25.5 says, Guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God my Savior. My hope is in you all day long. Because of God, we have a sense of hope, a sense of optimism, trust, that firm belief or reliability of, on the strength of someone or something. Isaiah 12.2 says, Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord is, and God is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. And then faith, we move from hope, which is optimism, to trust, which is a sense of reliability, to faith, which is complete trust and complete confidence in someone or something. Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 says, that according to the riches and glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to understand with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what are we anchoring our hope in? In whom do we trust? And how strong is our faith? First hope. The psalmist writes uh, at the source of our hope in Psalm 62.5, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. My sense of optimism, my sense of, of looking forward to the future comes from him. Jeremiah 22.1, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and give you a future and not to harm you, plans to give you hope for a future. Proverbs 13.12, hope deferred makes the heart grow sick but a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. In Psalm 39, 7, we read, And so, Lord, where do I put my hope? My only hope is in you. The only source of my true optimism, my, my true looking forward to the future is in you. Psalm 62, 3, Yes, my soul finds rest in God. My hope comes from him. Be joyful in hope, Romans 12, 12 says, patient in affliction and faithful in prayer. Romans 5 says, hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love to our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. The action of God makes sure that our hope is correctly aligned. 
Psalm 25, 5, guide me in your truth and teach me, for you are God, my Savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So hope is not just something of the imagination. It's just not something that's ephemeral. It's something that's anchored in something that's sure. It's something that's everlasting, something that's present, that's needed in the human soul. Emily Dickens picks this up in her, in her imaginings, in her poem, Hope, in 1894. She writes, Hope is that thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that has kept so many warm and heard in the chillest sea and on the strangest land and yet never in extremity did it ask a crumb of me. The second is trust, firm belief. Psalm 27 says, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. We're, what are we placing our trust in? And it's an important question in our current historical moment. Are we placing our trust that things will work out the way they should? For our college students, that we'll work hard and get a great job, that we'll find a perfect mate, we'll have a fulfilling marriage, we'll have 2.3 children who will make straight A's and all be good athletes. Well, what shapes this sense of oughtness? Is it informed by scripture or by culture, even church culture? You know, the things that we trust in to protect us can easily become idols. Success, prosperity, financial stability and independence, longevity to pursue all of our dreams, the payoff for hard work and ambition, having the right administration in the White House. These are all good things that can become ultimate things that we're placing God at the center of our life. You know, I once read, just in thinking about idols that we create in our life, one way to, to, to dig those out in your own life is to think about the thing that you fear and to look directly opposite that. Whatever that thing is that's opposite of your fear will have a tendency to become an idol in your life. For example, you might fear economic or financial instability. The opposite of that would be financial success. Nothing wrong with that. But if it becomes, we become obsessed with that so that we don't experience this thing that we're fearful of, it, it takes on a life of itself and can become an idol, becoming an ultimate thing. Indeed, we may be blessed with some or all of these things on this list, but what happens if we don't receive those blessings or if the flow of those blessings is, is in our estimation, cut short? Has God somehow forsaken us or not answered our prayers? Perhaps our prayers had become inverted. Instead of praying, not my will but yours, perhaps the orientation of our heart and the way we're actually living out that orientation is more akin to, well, it's really not your will but mine. We make the plans, we put in the hard work, we expect certain returns. Mindful to sprinkle in a few prayers for God's blessing over the things we have already set in motion. Almost as an afterthought. But what happens when God doesn't show up like we expect him to? Will we still trust him? If success and financial security elude us, a job opportunity is lost, a reorganization or downsizing finds us needing to start over again, maybe even at the back of the line, health issues arise that make it difficult, if not impossible, for us to pursue our dreams, the payoff for all that hard work doesn't come, at least not like we would expect it to, we're passed over for promotion, or become sidelined in our career because our core values no longer line up with the core values of the organization. 
There are two possibilities that often represent themselves, at least for our consideration at these intersections of, of faith. One is that perhaps God has somehow forgotten about us, or maybe he never, never really cared anyway. Either way, our trust can be shattered. Or perhaps there's a third possibility. Perhaps even as we thrash about in our existential crisis, maybe he's quietly but surely providing according to the promises that he's revealed in his word. Not according to the promises we wish he had made in his word. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 regrounds us on what God has promised us through Jesus both in and out of season. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weaknesses, for he faced all the same testing we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it the most. We're promised two things mercy and grace. Mercy, the promise that will not be overwhelmed by life if we turn to him and rely on his strength. Grace, the promise of his presence in the midst of our circumstances, sometimes changing our circumstances, sometimes changing us as he walks with us through our circumstances. Sometimes our trials are an opportunity for us to take an inventory. Are there good things in our life that have become ultimate things over time? Perhaps due to a slow, almost imperceptible gravitational pull. Our natural reaction to difficulties is to look for someone or something to blame. But what if these are the very circumstances that God has allowed to call us to himself so that we could see how he might be at work in bigger ways than we can even imagine, calling us to trust him? God invites us to partner with him in what he's doing, and that's what the Great Commission is all about. Granted, it's a risky strategy on his part, given our fickle characters and our fickle souls, but he's created us for fellowship with him, time shared with relationships, deepening as we walk together down the road together. No matter how winding that road is, it's the fellowship with God that he craves. Part of our disappointment comes when he doesn't seem to be partnering with us in the way in what we are doing at least not in the ways a good, helpful partner should, according to our definitions, partner with us. As a result of his failure to perform, we're tempted to lose our trust, at least partially. But you know, Scripture reminds us that we are in an all-in proposition. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I did a word study on the word all, and it means all. All your heart. And do not lean on your own understanding. In your ways acknowledge him, all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. But what if our setbacks are actually roadblocks placed in our path because there was a bridge out ahead? Wouldn't we want to know that? Proverbs 3 goes on, My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves whom he loves as a father, the son, in whom he delights. So the question is, in whom or what are we placing our trust? Is that object really trustworthy, not shaken by changing circumstances? The final point is faith, complete confidence. We've moved from a sense of optimism to full reliability to complete confidence. 
Hebrews 11.1 ties all three of these things together. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction or the trust of things not seen. The object of our faith is Jesus. He alone is completely trustworthy. He alone is the true source of our hope, both for today and for the future, regardless of what happens. These are days in our times and our lives when our faith has the opportunity to grow. I say the opportunity because in difficult times, our natural reaction is to curl up, cover our heads, and wait until someone blows the all clear. But what if God is calling us to actually lean into our difficulties, not recoil from them, and in that leaning in to discover him at work in new and powerful ways that are transformative to us, to be a part of the story of redemption that he's unfolding even amidst the noise. I think this is what James was writing about in James 1, 2 through 4, when he wrote, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result. In other words, lean into it so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Notice that James writes that we should consider it joy when we encounter trials, not if. Jesus reminded his disciples in John 16, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulations. But take heart, I have overcome the world. 1 Peter 4.12 says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. So there's a sort of resilience that's needed to live a life of, of faith, a resilience that's formed as our endurance is increased. Our spiritual muscle memory grows as we walk or sometimes crawl, through trials and experience God's provision and his presence in deep, profound ways, ways that we might have missed altogether if everything was smooth sailing. The story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego beautifully illustrates this. You remember the story. King Nebuchadnezzar had ordered that an image of himself be erected in the plain of Dura. It was about 90 feet tall. And that upon playing of the, the, the instruments, everyone was to stop what they were doing, turn toward the plain of Dura, bow, and worship that statue. Well, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego wouldn't do that. And so they were brought before the king. And the king said, okay, I'm going to give you one more chance on the threat of the fiery furnace. When the horns blow, you're to bow down and worship this image. And so what do you say to that? And we pick up the story in Daniel 3, verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered the king and said, Oh, Nebuchadnezzar, we, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this is be so, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the fiery furnace, and he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the golden image that you have set up. A bold declaration of God's sovereignty and of their faith and trust in his power. What must have gone through their minds, though, as their hands were being bound and they're being pushed along at spear point toward the door of the furnace? Perhaps their prayer was for a miracle. 
hoping for a miracle. Maybe the king's heart would recant recant, and he would change his mind. Maybe the guards would kind of help them escape or something. No doubt they were hoping that something would happen, but still trusting no matter what. They were hoping perhaps for a miracle on this side of the door while God's plan was to give them his presence on the other side of the door. I think most of us would like to dial the clock back and just get back to normal. But one good thing, and there are probably many that's come out of this season, is a reminder that it's a marathon and not a sprint when it comes to our lives of faith. There are important questions we each have to answer if we desire to run this race well. Will we still live hopeful lives knowing that God is sovereign and not surprised by any of this? Will we still trust him even if fill in the blank? Will we recommit ourselves to one who is or should be the true object of our faith? One whose power is not augmented or diminished by weekly polls. One whose worth is not determined by the number of likes or retweets on social media. One who calls us like Peter to step out of the boat and keep our eyes on him. One who reaches out to lift us up when we start to sink because we didn't keep our eyes on him. One who is standing at the end of history and looking back. One who calls us to be his storytellers in a world that desperately needs to hear true stories of hope, healing, forgiveness, and grace. Sometimes it involves our own personal journeys to yet. Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18 charts that path. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there is no sheep in the pen, no cattle in the stalls, yet, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Sometimes he leads us on a journey to yet so that we can understand what it means to trust him. You know, if you've joined us today, either here in in our sanctuary or online, and you're not a follower of Christ, this may all sound kind of vaguely familiar, but yet in some ways strange. As followers of Christ, we're not exempt from the pressures and anxieties and stress that overshadows much of the world this afternoon. Our families aren't perfect. We stumble along the way and have questions about the future just like everyone else. Yet, we have placed our hope, our faith, and our trust in Christ who walks with us through all this messiness. Above, inside, and outside it all, he has a view that we simply don't have. We know from his word and from his sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf that he loves us and he is completely trustworthy. As a result, we're able to lean into him and his promises that we have talked about this afternoon, much like coming home after a long, tiring trip and experience a peace that passes all understanding. In other words, to find calm in the midst of the storm, a calm that might not make sense to someone who's just watching from the outside. We all began this journey home in the exact same way, though, by coming to the realization that we were far from God because of the choices we've made turning to him and asking him to forgive us and confessing with our mouth and with our hearts that Jesus 
is who he said he was, that he came to earth as God incarnate to show us how to live a sinless life, to die in our place, accepting all the guilt of our sin and our wrongs upon him, even though he deserved none of it, demonstrating that God loved us even at our worst and was willing to take the penalty of death upon himself so that we might have eternal life with him. But that wasn't the end of the story. Three days later, he rose from the dead, victorious over sin and the grave, and later ascended back to heaven. Where he sits today, providing understanding and compassion for us that gives us confidence that we're not left without hope, even when we deliberately make choices that grieve him. He stands ready to forgive us and welcome us back into fellowship, where peace and joy are found, even in the craziest of times, as we confess where we've missed the mark and then, enabled by his spirit, begin again to set out to walk a different way, moving away from our old life and toward a restored relationship with him. It's the definition of repentance. If you haven't had this encounter with Jesus, I'd invite you to flag either me or Jacob down after service. We'd love to talk to you and pray with you um, about this. Does that mean that all your troubles will be over? No, but it does mean that you can depend on his mercy and grace to sustain you as you lean into him, increasing your hope, increasing your trust, and increasing your faith. So for all of us this afternoon, the question becomes, what are we building our hope on? Accomplishments, having great kids or grandkids, financial security, a certain level of influence, policymakers in D.C., those are all good things, at least potentially, but they can become ultimate things if we're not careful. In what or in whom are we placing our trust? In yourself as a self-actualized, self-made, self-determined, self-sufficient man or woman? Career status? Your 401k? How reliable are any of these things? Are they worthy of your trust? What or whom is the object of your faith? Your resume, your network, your intellect, your resilience. What on that list would you consider never changing? As followers of Christ, our faith is anchored in him, the cornerstone, the solid rock, the unmoved mover, as Thomas Aquinas wrote. You know, the tensions that Dickens creates and his opposite sets the context for his story to unfold, a story into which we are invited as observers. In our current story, though, we are called to be active participants, not just observers. We are called to intentionally live out the gospel with both boldness and clarity as a result of the deep hope, trust, and faith that we have in God. He has promised to keep us and give us his peace even if... Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. For you see, it really is the best of times to show God's light in the midst of the worst of times. It is the age when God's wisdom and truth will be exalted in the face of foolishness. It is the epic of belief that offers hope, trust, and faith in an epic of incredulity. It's a season where we, as patches of God-light, are called to illuminate the season of darkness. It's the spring of hope, anchored in the finished work of Christ that circumvents our journey into the winter of despair. But all this requires us to fix our eyes on Jesus and get out of the boat. 
knowing that is where we'll experience God's power in our lives as we move way beyond what we can accomplish on our own. May we find ourselves anchored fast in Christ, our best hope, the one on whom we can trust, and the only true object of our faith, the final overcomer. And may we tell the tale of his faithfulness with joy and hope as we gather around table for Thanksgiving, knowing that the end of the story has already been written. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the eye of faith. We see you as Father. To know you as covenant God, to experience your love planted in us. For faith is the grace of union by which you have called us to yourself. Faith allowed us to cast our anger upwards where we trust you and confess you as our Lord. Be pleased to live and move within us, breathing our prayers, inhabiting our praises, speaking in our words, moving in our actions, living in our lives, and causing us to grow in grace. Your bounteous goodness vouchsafed through your Holy Spirit has drawn us to you, but we confess that our faith is often weak and wavering, its light dim, its steps tottering, its increase slow, its backslidings frequent. It should scale the heavens, but it often lies groveling in the dust. Lord, fan this divine spark into a glowing flame in each of our lives. Awaken the faith that often sleeps in our hearts to put forth its strength until all heaven fills our souls and all impurity is cast out and our hearts are tuned to sing your praise with true thanksgiving for your boundless grace. For it is in the name of Jesus Christ, our hope, the source of our hope, our anchor, our trust, and the object of our faith, we pray. Amen.